All right. Well, good morning again. Uh, it's great to be together. I want to give a welcome to H2O Akron, who's joining us via video. And uh, we are in the middle of this series that we're calling Enemies of the Heart. Uh, and, and this series has been an opportunity for us to kind of stop and to reflect a little bit on our hearts. Obviously, we talked about last week, this is not a health series. It's not about our physical hearts, but it's about that other heart that all of us have, that the Bible talks about oftentimes. Uh, it, it's about the emotional, spiritual side of who we are and how we're doing. And, and the Bible actually talks a lot about that, that second heart that we all have. Uh, uh, King Solomon, he is the writer of a book. Uh, called Proverbs, and in this book, he is imparting wisdom to his family, to his kingdom, and, and through uh, the words of Scripture to us, even to this day, and King Solomon says this about the heart. Uh, he says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So above all else, guard your heart because everything that you do, the person that you become, who you are, how you speak, how you act, it flows from this heart that we're talking about, the all-important heart. And so uh, the pages of Scripture talk often about the reality of how important our heart is. And yet in our world, in our society, we have so much going on. We have so many things happening that, that it's oftentimes tempting to, to kind of forget about our heart and not heed the words of, of King Solomon and not actually guard our heart, but continue to run it down rather than actually pay attention to it. And so this is a four-week series where we're talking through these different enemies that we believe can literally like deaden your heart a little bit if you don't pay attention to them. And as I was thinking about this series, uh, I heard this analogy before about our heart, and I thought that it was, it was pretty fitting. Uh, it's an analogy related to, uh, to golf, and specifically to uh, a golf ball. Now, uh, just as a side note, um, I was giving my, my, some of my golfing friends a hard time here because I'm not a, a huge golf fan, actually. Um, I, I, I hesitate to call golf a sport because I feel like anything you can do like with a beverage in your hand or a sandwich in your hand isn't really a sport, so it's maybe a game. I'm sorry if I'm offending you. Um, but, but at the bottom line, the, really the reason why I, I give golfers a hard time is because I'm just not that good at it, right? And, uh, and, and so I played a little bit throughout high school. I played a little bit in college. I played early in my 20s. But, but the problem was, like, I was always good enough to, like, be kind of in the game, but I was never good enough to beat the person I was playing with. And it was just such a frustrating game, not sport. It was such a frustrating game for me. And uh, so, like, three years ago, I just gave up golf altogether, you know? I told my wife it's, it's got the two, it requires the two things that I don't have a lot of, time and money, and so I'm done with it. Like if anybody asks me to go golf, I just say, I don't believe in that anymore. And that's literally, that's like kind of my stance when it comes to golf. So anyway, that's just a little bit about me. But I, I heard this analogy about a golf ball and how it can relate to our heart. And, and when you think about going golfing, one of the things that I used to have to do when I did golf is go buy a bunch of golf balls because I was probably going to lose a couple, right, in, in a lake or behind a tree. And so I would go and buy these golf balls, and if you go to the golf ball aisle at Walmart or Target or wherever, there's all these different types of golf balls. You know, there, there's tons of different manufacturers, there's tons of different uh, realities that they tell you about the golf ball, and one of the leading things that they will tell you about if you ever see a commercial about a golf ball or go in the golf ball aisle is this dimple 
technology, okay? And so on the outside of a golf ball, if you're not familiar with golf, there's all these little dimples, right? And so what the manufacturers say, and probably is at least true to some extent, is that like the, the technology in these little dimples will make your game so much better if you just trust them and buy their golf ball, you know? And so like if, if the dimple's a little deeper, maybe the ball will go farther. If there's a lot of them, maybe it'll go shorter, but you'll have more control. And so they, they, they talk about this dimple technology, and they try to sell you on buying their golf ball based on the dimples on the outside of the golf ball. But, but here's what is really interesting about a golf ball is that what actually makes it fly is not on the outside of the golf ball. It's, it's the core. It's on the inside. You can see this picture. And, and every type of golf ball has something like this in the middle of it, some type of hard rubber that actually allows this ball to go the distance that it is supposed to go. So you can mess with the outside a little bit. You know, you can change the dimples a little bit here or there, and that may affect it just slightly. But the heart of what drives a golf ball into the air is that core in the center of it. That is what really makes a golf ball a golf ball. That is what is going to decide whether it flies or whether it falls on the ground. Is, is the core of this ball the way that, is this, that it is supposed to be? As I was thinking about that, I was thinking that's, that's pretty similar to like our lives, right? You know, oftentimes we can be concerned about the exterior of how we look. You know, we can try to do some behavior modification and come across as nice, good people. Some people think that's what church is all about, actually. Some people think church is just coming and trying to kind of put on a good exterior, you know, and, and look good and, and put in your one-hour religious duty for the week. And, and when we do that, it's basically just like changing a dimple here or there on the outside of the golf ball, but it's not really doing anything for the core of who we are. And so this series, the hope is that we don't get confused about what God wants from us. God wants our hearts. He doesn't want our behavior modification. He doesn't want us just to kind of dress up for a job interview and try to make ourselves look as good as we possibly can. Some of us live our whole lives like we're on a job interview. But God cares way more than that. God doesn't want us to have to perform. He cares about our hearts. He cares about what's inside in us. And that's what we're so excited about with this series. You see, throughout this series, we're talking about these four different enemies of the heart. These four different things that, that can like literally tear our hearts apart and turn us into the people that we don't want to be. These four different then habits that we can use to uh, end the destructive behaviors that we can have in our life and actually live abundant, full lives that God wants us to. And so last week we talked about this idea of anger and bitterness. Today we're talking about this concept of guilt. Today we're talking about guilt. When you want to think about an enemy of the heart, guilt is one of the greatest enemies that the heart can ever face. You see, guilt is a powerful affection or a powerful emotion that not only affects our mindsets, but it affects the way that we live. It affects our actions as well. Guilt isn't just something that we keep inside. Guilt affects the way that we live our lives. And one of the ways that we know guilt is such a powerful tool, such a powerful emotion. Oh, that was interesting. Um, one of the ways that we know that is by how we use the word. Okay? Think about this. You know that a word is powerful. You know that a word is significant if it was supposed to be a noun, but we can also use it as a verb. Okay, let me explain that to you. Okay, think about this. Andy Stanley talks about this in his book, Enemy of the Heart, which we, we base a lot of this series on. Uh, he says, if you think about uh, the word Google, right, what is Google? 
Google was a search engine. It's a company, right? It's a noun. It's a, it's a place that you can go visit. They have headquarters here in the United States. You know, Google is, is a noun, but it's become so powerful, so prominent, that we use it as a verb, don't we? Hey, you don't know what time that basketball game starts? Well, just go Google it, and you can find out, you know? Or I don't know the answer to something, so go Google it. And even if we're using Yahoo, we'll say go Google it, right? Because Google is so prevalent that it was a noun that we turned into a verb, right? Now think about guilt. It's true of guilt as well. You can look up guilt in, in the dictionary, and it's described as a noun. But how many times have you been guilted into an action? How many times have you kind of lived out of guilt and been guilted into an action, or maybe even a little bit more heart-wrenching if we're honest, how many times have we guilted others into doing something for us or into performing a way that we wanted them to perform. See, guilt is so powerful that it was formed as a noun, but it's a verb as well. It affects the way that we live. And see, guilt at a heart level says, I have done something wrong, therefore I owe you something. Guilt says, I owe someone something. And guilt puts us into a place of debt to the person that we have wronged. And so it's so powerful because of that reality. And the problem with guilt is that it creates this huge gap between us and the people that we believe that we owe something to, doesn't it? If you've ever felt like you've wronged somebody and you think about how you interact with that person after you've wronged them, the more guilt you have, the more awkward your relationship will be with them. You know, have you ever had somebody owe you money, maybe, you know, and, and maybe as a friend and you're hanging out and they were supposed to pay you back on a certain date and they still haven't and they still haven't, and all of a sudden you stop seeing that person around, you know, like they owe you money, but you don't see them as often anymore, even though you used to see them all the time, and it's like, huh, that's interesting, I wonder why I don't see that person anymore. Oh, I know, because they owe me something, and so they're avoiding me. See, the guilt drives a wedge in the relationship that we have with people. And this is the power that debt, that, that that debt of guilt has in our relationship. See, guilt separates us from people. It separates us from the people that are closest to us. And guilt separates us from God. See, this message isn't just about our, our interactions with one another, although there's a lot of application for that. But guilt not only separates us from the people that we're closest with, guilt also separates us from God. But here's the good news. I didn't just come here to tell you the bad news, right? I came here to tell you the good news because uh, just like an unhealthy heart can have some things done to it to make it healthy again. Maybe if it's really severe, you get a pacemaker put in. Maybe if you just have a bad diet, you change your diet and it makes your heart healthier all of a sudden. The same is true in our lives. Even though there's these destructive things that we're tempted to feel and live in, God has given us a, a, a reason, an answer, a way, away from those enemies of our heart to allow us to live in full abundant life and the remedy for guilt is confession okay the remedy for guilt that every single one of us is tempted to live our lives in bondage to the remedy to guilt is confession see that's the big idea that we want to talk about today abundant life comes from confessing our sins rather than living in guilt abundant life the life that we all want the life where our heart is full and alive and well. Abundant life comes from confessing our sins rather than living in guilt. 
Now, when you think about uh, confessing our sins, there may be a lot of different kind of connotations that come to your mind as you think about that. I remember I grew up, um, like I've told you many times before, I grew up in a a family that went to church fairly often. I remember when I was in fourth or fifth grade and spiritual things were kind of just starting to click with me, I remember hearing about this concept of confession. And, And so what I understood to happen was if you sinned, you would then confess it to God, and once you confess it to God, God guaranteed had to forgive you for that sin. And so here, here was my fifth grade mindset. It was like, I kind of like sinning, you know? And so what I'll do is I will sin as much as I want to, but I got a loophole. The end of the day before I go to bed every night, I'll confess it to God, and then God has to forgive me. You know, maybe you've actually had that thought before. So for me, I remember this vividly. I, I like to cuss in fifth grade. I don't know. You shouldn't do that. If you're a fifth grader here, I know there's a couple of you guys. Don't cuss. But anyway, I like to cuss. And so uh, I would say, I know that this probably isn't the best, but I'm just going to keep doing it because it's cool. It makes me, I thought it was anyhow, it makes me fit in. So I would cuss all I wanted to throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, when I lay down before and put my head on the pillow, Say, God, now I remember this time I said this word. I remember this time I said this word. I remember this time I said that. I go through every single one and I would confess them to God. And at the end I'd say, and if I forgot anything, God, please forgive me for that as well. Amen. You know, and that was my view of confession. That was how I interacted with God around the topic of confession. Because I thought, the Bible says if I confess, God will forgive me. So it's like a done deal. He has to do it. And and what was working for me or what I felt like was working for me is I was allowing confession to become a tool that actually facilitated my sin rather than ending it. Okay? So think about that in your own life, even right now. That is the opposite of what true confession is, all right? Confession isn't just something to help us feel better about ourselves and continue on in our sin, okay? That is not what confession is at all. Confession is way more than just saying I'm sorry. Confession is way more than just some lip service that that we kind of lend to God or lend to other people and we continue on in the behavior that's destructive or wrong. That is not at all what confession is. Confession is a first step in a process that leads to real change. Okay, confession is a first step in a process that forces us to admit our failures. It forces us to admit our mistakes, to admit our sins, being broken over those, but then bringing them out into the open. Okay, and that's the beautiful thing about confession, is that it brings it out into the open, and it actually takes away our need to hide. And it takes away our shame, and it takes away our guilt, and it allows us to walk in the freedom that God created us to live in. Man, doesn't that feel wonderful to just, even if you're not there right now, just imagine what that could feel like. To imagine to be like completely free of that guilt that you may have, uh, of those, those things that you've hidden in your hearts and have kind of welled up and, and have kind of numbed you a little bit. But to imagine them being out in the open and still being loved, still being accepted, still being cared for. That's what confession is all about. And it is the remedy to the guilt that many of us struggle with and deal with. You see, in order to have a true confession, you have to actually admit that you were wrong, okay? And this can be one of the hardest things for all of us to do, 
Can it be? Uh, there's that, you know, that stereotypical reality that, that many of us talk about, that, that, you know, guys especially, they don't like admitting that they're wrong, you know? And, and as you're sitting here, I want to just ask you to think about it. Do you like admitting that you're wrong? And probably nobody likes admitting you're wrong, but are you okay with at least admitting that you're wrong? Is it something that you can do regularly and often? As I was preparing for this message, I texted my wife. I said, I, I need an example. Um, can you think of any time that, that I've been wrong recently? And she responded back right away, oh boy, can I ever, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I, we were kind of laughing about that. I, I do fall into that stereotypical, don't always like to admit that I'm wrong. Um, my, my wife sometimes has even accused me of giving like these half-hearted apologies. That's what she's says when she's being nice, half-hearted um, apologies. And, uh, and so as you think about that, I was thinking about this story. I, I, I got a motorcycle about a year ago. And, um, and, and so I really, I love riding my motorcycle. It's pretty, pretty fun, pretty cool. But we have three kids. My wife is gracious, and she's like, you know, I'm behind you. I support you. But we do have three kids, you know, and, and I don't, you know, I want you to be around, you know. And so obviously motorcycles can have a reputation of being dangerous. So we debated a little bit whether I should get one or not. And uh, I've been waiting for like 10 years to get one. And so um, she's like, okay, you know, that, that's totally fine. But we, we agreed that there would be this one stipulation for me to get my motorcycle. You can probably guess. The one stipulation was that I wore a helmet no matter what. Okay? She said, hey, great. Go have fun. You, but you got to wear a helmet every time, no matter what. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. So I get the motorcycle. And like the first six months, um, I was following the rule, you know. And uh, about a month ago, I just, it was a beautiful day. And, um, and, and I just, so I started off with the full helmet. And then I went to the half helmet. And it just feels more fun without the full helmet on. And so I just jumped on the motorcycle and I left the house without a helmet on. And, uh, and, and even worse than that, like I, I was being kind of sneaky about it because she was still home. And so I was like looking over my shoulder to see if she knew that I didn't have the helmet on or not. And so I drive uh, to work. It was a Tuesday. We have all of our staff meetings on Tuesday and everything. We get to our prayer time and uh, my wife texts, texts me and she says, hey, you forgot your helmet. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot it. And she's like, you didn't forget it, did you? And I'm like, um, I said something like, um, and she was like, I saw you look back off your motorcycle <laughs> to see if I was looking. I know you didn't forget it. <laughs> and I'm like, dang. And, uh, and so I was like, well, I started making excuses right away. It's a beautiful day. I'm going like two miles. It's not a big deal. And she's like, we had an agreement. You know, you got to wear the helmet. We had an agreement. And finally, after trying to justify it, after trying to make excuses, I finally, like, sat in. You're like, you know what? We did have an agreement. I totally broke my word to you. You know, I totally was in the wrong. And, uh, and so I did actually apologize to her. And I said, you know what? I'm sorry. You know, will you forgive me? And I confessed. I did. I looked back, and I didn't think you saw me. And... Uh, <laughs> And so the question is, are, are we confessing things just because we got caught? Or are we confessing things because we're actually convinced that we were in the wrong? You see, here's the thing. Uh, confession requires us to admit that we're wrong. And there can be three responses to being wrong. At least three responses that I can think of. Three, three responses that all of us can have. The, the first response that we can do is we can try to avoid our guilt. Can't we? And, and some of us have almost become experts in doing this. 
trying to uh, avoid our guilt. Maybe we distract ourselves. Maybe we lie to ourselves. Like we've convinced ourselves so much that what we did actually isn't wrong that, that we're like, hey, it's okay. So we just, we, we avoid it as much as we can. This is what a, a lot of times, uh, sometimes, and why sometimes we, we give things like self-help movements a hard time sometimes because oftentimes what some of those can do, I won't say all, but some of them can do is they just try to keep lowering and lowering and lowering the bar for right and wrong. And eventually, if you never say that anything is wrong, then maybe you won't have any guilt in your life because you're only a person that you're only accountable to is yourself. So as long as you're just doing things to make yourself happy, then there is no such thing as wrong. And this is what I would say is avoiding guilt because God has written on all of our hearts what is right or wrong. And we can try to avoid it as much as we want, but deep down at the core of who we are, we know that there's right and that there's wrong. And it's not given by us, that it's given by our creator, God. So we can avoid it. Second, we can hide from it. We can hide from our sins. And, and this is what we do when we try to cover things up. We can blame it on somebody else. We can say, well, yeah, I, 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 you know, I totally blew up on that person, but really it was mostly their fault anyway. I shouldn't have even been in the situation. I mean, we can try to hide from our sins. We can try to delete our history on our life. You know, we can try to avoid those behaviors that we know are wrong and just say, you know what, it really wasn't my fault. Or third and finally, and what I would propose is what we should do, we can confess our sins and we can receive forgiveness. We can confess our sins and bring them out into the open and live as free men and women that God wants us to live for. You know, there's something about bringing something that's hidden in the darkness, whether it's the depths of our hearts or wherever it might be, bringing it from the darkness into the light that all of a sudden gives it less power and allows us to actually be free. So I want to talk about these, these three different points today of what confession truly is. Because even though I, I'm hoping that we're painting a picture for the importance of it, I think that it's such a confusing word sometimes, even in our religious context, that we may not know exactly what it is and what it looks like. And so I, I want to kind of wrap up this message with talking about three things that confession is. And the first one is this, that confession is done before God. Okay? Confession is done before God. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, it says this. If we claim to be without sin, <laughs> in other words, if we can't admit that we're wrong sometimes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we made him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. You see, we start with confessing our sin to God because every wrongdoing that we have, it, it, it is a sin against God because God is perfect. God is all-powerful. God is magnificent. And so when we fall short of his standards, it, it, it is a sin against him. And, and oftentimes in our, our lives, and I know myself, I've been tempted to live this way and to do this. Oftentimes when we sin, we do that same thing that we do that we owe the person $50. We, we see them less and less. 
And sadly, some of us, we, we carry that into our relationship with God. When we sin, it's like we're running from God a little bit more. And it's almost like we, we, we think that maybe God just can't find us. You know, it's like this hide-and-go-seek game. And maybe if we stay far enough away from him, he won't be able to find us. But at the end of the day, we all know that God is omniscient, meaning he knows every single thing. Right? And so when we sin, when we're wrong, when we make a mistake, rather than running from God or trying to hide our sins from God, we might as well confess it to him because he already knows it anyway. And, and, and as we confess our sins to God, it does something. It does something. It actually brings us closer to him. It, 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 it improves that intimacy and the relationship that we have with him. Some people say, well, if God knows everything, and, and God is omniscient, as we talked about, big theological world, word, then, then why in the world do I even need to confess my sins for God, he, to God? He already knows them. That's a good point. It is true. But the Bible tells us to because as we confess our sins with God, it, it brings us deeper into our relationship with him. See, God wants to know us. God loves us. God wants to be close with us. God wants us to talk with him often. God wants us to pray to him often and have a dialogue with him. And if we're sinning and hiding from him, then that stops us from having that intimate relationship that he wants to have with us. But if we're saying, God, and we're confessing our sins to him, when we make mistakes, it drives us closer to him. Rather than driving a wedge between us and God, it drives us closer to him. Other people have said, well, why do I need to confess something to God? Because if I'm a Christian then God has already forgiven every single sin that I've ever committed, right? So if every sin I've ever committed has already been forgiven, then why do I even need to go and confess it and say it to God? And so again, I would say obviously for the intimacy, but also for the responsibility, okay? Because here's the reality. Just because we've been forgiven for every sin, that we have ever committed in the past, will commit now, and will commit in the future. That's the gospel. That is true if you are in Christ, and you can rest in that. Just because we've been forgiven for every single sin, and our penalty for our sin has been paid, doesn't mean that there still aren't consequences to our sins here on this earth. That's just the reality. And it's kind of heavy, but it's so true. I mean, if you think about much of our world... Unfortunately, some, some really bad things have been done by people who profess to be followers of Christ. And all of us, I don't know whether you know it or not, but all of us are capable of that. Even if you are in Christ, we are capable of committing sins. And so confessing our sins to God helps hold us accountable to God because there still are consequences for our sins. Just because you're a, a Christian, if you go tell somebody super close to you off, there's going to be a consequence to that. There's going to be something that separates your relationship with them. Obviously, we can go even further. If you're a Christian and, and you kill somebody, there is a consequence for that. You are going to leave uh, in the wake of that uh, just uh, massive amounts of pain and destruction. There are consequences for our sins, even though we've been forgiven for our sins. And so confession helps us communicate with God and the intimacy, and it helps hold us accountable to living up to the standard that God wants us to live for. Because again, confession is more than lip service. It's about actual change. And so when we confess it to God, there's that conviction that comes into our heart that allows us to move closer to God, to root sin out of our life, rather than to continue in the sin that we're tempted to persist in. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. 
And Jesus is talking, and he says this. He says, therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and go and be reconciled to them, and then come offer your gift. And last week we talked a lot about how there's this vertical relationship that we have with God and how the vertical and the horizontal always interact with each other. And that's what Matthew is saying here too. Can you imagine, okay, just, you know, we hear that verse, maybe you've heard it before, and it's kind of like, oh, you know, that's, that's interesting. Can you imagine how inconvenient that was? You know, you're going to the temple to make a sacrifice. You probably, in those days, had to travel a pretty good amount of distance. And it wasn't by car or bus or plane. You know, you walked a long way to get to the temple or the tabernacle where you're about to make an offering to God. And so you're ready to focus on God. And Jesus says, hey, listen, that's great that you want to make an offering to God. That's great. But if you've wronged somebody... Don't go worship God quite yet. Go back and get right with that person and then come and make the offering. That's pretty serious. That's that's a pretty big deal. And I think it shows us how serious Jesus is for all of us about guarding our heart. Because what it does is if we just focus on the the, the up relationship, the vertical relationship with God, but we don't care about the, the people in our lives, then we're deadening a little bit of our heart rather than saying these two are interlinked. And they can't be separated. And they're always affecting each other. And that leads us to our second thing that we want to talk about. Confession is done in community. Okay, so confession is done before God, but confession is done in community. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. As you think about confessing your sins to one another, I think there's two different categories that that can fall into. First is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew. And and if we have wronged somebody, if we have committed a sin against somebody, if we have done something that we know is wrong, it is on us to go to them and confess that to them. Especially if you are here and you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. It is on us to go back and to make that thing right. Now, we don't know exactly how they'll respond. We don't know exactly how that conversation will go. But what Jesus is telling us and what the gospel is telling us is that we can go and confess, and it alleviates that guilt that we have. It doesn't mean the conversation will be easy or great, but it will mean that that guilt that we have will start to be set free. So, of course, if we've wronged somebody, we need to go to them and apologize and own it. But I think even beyond that, what James especially is getting at is that every single one of us in our life, we're tempted to have secrets. You know, we're tempted to have dark places in our heart that we're kind of just holding things onto. And we haven't really let them out there. And I think what James is getting at is that we need a band of brothers. We need a band of sisters. We need people in our lives that we can trust and that we can go to and that will speak Jesus and speak the gospel to us and we can confess our sins to. Again, there's something about when things are in the dark, they're just heavy. They're way more weighty on us. And it drives us to be guilty people. And James is saying, listen, 
as you speak those things to other people, just the very act of speaking them to other people will start to chip away at that guilt that you may be feeling. And so if you want to move away from the guilt that you have in your life, then find people in your life that will love you, that you can confess your sins to, that will walk alongside of you and carry the burdens that you may have. Because in that, there's healing. And in that, there's power. And in that, there's the ability to walk in the grace and the freedom that God has for us. So confession is done before God. Confession is done in community. And then third and finally, confession is driven by the gospel. Okay, confession is driven by the gospel. Romans 10, 9 and 11 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. See, here's the beautiful thing about being a follower of Jesus. And this is why I love following Christ. Because we don't have to feel that guilt and condemnation and shame for our sins. See, God took that burden for us. And and what following Christ is about isn't about cleaning up the outside so that we look like better people. It's about a literal heart transformation that changes us from the inside out. And as we go about living our lives, we can embrace the fact that that the brokenness and the sin and even the consequences for our sins, they've been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And so we don't have to try to look better than we actually are. We can embrace the fact that we are wrong oftentimes, but there's a remedy for our sin. There's a remedy for our brokenness, and it is Jesus. See, Jesus lived that perfect life. Jesus had no guilt. Jesus had no shame because he lived a perfect life. He didn't have to even understand what that was because he was perfect. He's God. And yet he came to earth, and, and he loved every single person, was sent to the cross, tortured, crucified, and killed. But he went to the cross because he saw the guilt that all of us live in. He said, I don't want that for them. And so he took our guilt onto him. Can you imagine that? Living a perfect life and taking somebody else's guilt. He went to the cross. He was killed, put in the grave. And three days later, he rose, saying, I've defeated death. I've defeated shame. I've defeated guilt. And so we don't have to live in it anymore. Not because we're always right but because Jesus is always right, and we follow him. And so his righteousness, his perfection now applies to us. Those of us who say we're followers of Christ, those of us who walk with God, those of us who are in Christ, that's the power of the gospel. And that frees us to confess our brokenness and our sins and leave our guilt at the foot of the cross because Jesus took it for us. See, in Romans, we're also told, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so if you want to be free, if you want to walk in the abundant life that God has promised for us, we can give Jesus our guilt and our shame. And we can be men and women that are open and honest with our brokenness. Because we're not trying to be perfect. We're just trying to serve a perfect God. So I want to pray. I want to invite the band to come up, and we're going to worship and celebrate God for that.